0: You know so like um what are you guys drinking like white girl rosé or something
1: <laughs> yep <laughs> it's my it's my it's my new brand of rosé karen rosé oh so you're,
0: so you're really you're really drinking it awesome um yeah it was kind of jarring when i i was walking around my neighborhood of crown heights uh, a few months ago and i saw a big delivery truck uh emblazoned with uh, the white girl rosé logo it seemed a little little off considering it's a predominantly black uh, neighborhood, but uh, I was like, oh, I was by myself, but I felt really embarrassed. I was just like walking alone. And I felt really awkward like looking at
1: it. Not, not the best, not the best name <laughs> for, uh, for,
0: you know. Well, I think the guy who created it goes by the name of like Fat Jew or something like that.
2: <laughs> the Fat Jewish? Yes, yeah, the fat, fat Jew guy or something. He's like, the, what he, in? the, of, of Instagram fame? Probably yeah, uh, it's like yeah. yeah. he has got like this weird
0: like ponytail that goes kind of vertical off his head or something.
1: Well, see, <laughs> see, see, my idea is um, it is is Karen Rose, and uh, the more you drink, the more you want to call the manager. Oh,
0: that's awesome, dude! It's it's kind of like you know some people are are really happy drunks and some people are like really aggressive drunks. This is like a different kind of drunk where it's like it's semi aggressive, but it's it's more just like focused on like it's the very more you aggressive drink. And
2: aggressive. Yeah, the, the more upset you are with with like the the situation that you're in, you um, should be a, you're, you're entitled to a better wine. <laughs> There's be a tagline for you.
1: Welcome to the first ever episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. I'm journalist Walker Bragman, joined by colleagues... Alex Koch, Mark Colangelo. Hope everybody's pissed off and as and, uh, pissed off as we are. Uh, so Everything's fine,
0: Bragman. dude. What are you talking
1: about? It's great. The world, the world is great right now. Um, so we, today we're going to be discussing Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. Which Wait, is,
0: that's still going on?
1: It apparently. That's that's what I hear. Uh, I thought he
0: dropped out like a couple months ago.
1: Yeah, where the fuck is he? Well, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I mean, it just seem like he do, he does seem to be running like a like, like they're framing it now as like quiet leadership. I just call it absent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if like hiding in a basement. Uh, is actually leadership. It just sounds like more being quiet. Um,
1: it's like the Quar campaign. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it really doesn't inspire confidence that like he's up for this. I think it's somewhat troubling that Joe Biden has been so absent. Like how do you run a presidential campaign uh, and demonstrate quiet leadership? Like what does quiet leadership mean in in the digital age? Like how do you, how is that the exact
0: opposite of what people need right now they want it's not someone who's a contrast to trump and when biden's giving a a super overproduced video address like every five days and maybe goes on one show and kind of embarrasses himself every week
1: like it's it's not leadership you know it's it's absenteeism so we we know we know joe biden's campaign platform or the, the policies that he's proposing. He doesn't have a universal healthcare plan. He doesn't have a plan to get rid of fracking. He doesn't really have an adequate plan to meet our climate goals. He has no plan for universal debt forgiveness. Um, even in the middle of this crisis, he's repeatedly affirmed that he does not support Medicare for all. I mean, he's made that abundantly clear. Um, but the question is that, that where is this man getting getting the, the advice? That put the, Where did this platform come from? And uh, today, we hope to answer that by discussing some of the ghouls behind Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign.
0: This episode of Gilded Age is brought to you by the Kenneth C. Griffin School of Economics at the University of Chicago. Whether you're a Latin American dictator recently installed by the CIA or a would-be dictator, the Griffin School is the place for you your one-stop resource for attaining absolute power, forced respect, and ludicrous amounts of money. We are offering a COVID-19 special of 50% off of our four-week online neoliberal fascism course. That's right. In just one month, you can learn to extract every last cent from the public sector of your despotic nation while snuffing out any and all forms of resistance you and your totalitarian sycophants will bathe in vast pools of cash before sending it to Cayman Islands bank accounts as a special bonus in this dire time of need. We'll even throw in a digital weekend conference on public displays of brutality. Enter discount code GILDED at checkout for half off a course that will ensure your right to massacre millions of innocent people. So in the, in the last week, we found out that uh, Biden is being advised by none other than Rahm Emanuel. Um, There's the, a name. One of the, one of the most hated um, centrist Democrats by the left, uh, without a doubt. Um, this, is, this is a guy who was an aide in the Clinton White House. Uh, when he was there, he helped push through NAFTA, uh, through Congress. He apparently um, cautioned against immigration reform. Um, and I'll give you a, a little more of the history. So after after the Clinton White House, since he cashed in, went to Wall Street, uh, worked at an investment bank for four years, and, and took home sixteen million dollars. Um, then he was elected to modest Congress. Dumb. A yeah, just dumb. just a few mil. I mean, like some people do the speech circuit, you know, after they kind of have like semi fame
2: or real fame. It's it's and, just a, and, it's you know. the revolving door. He is he's not he doesn't epitomize it. He is he was the revolving. Door. <laughs>
0: So after after the investment bank, the well, first one, there'll be another one. Uh, he went to Congress, uh, and then he was, I guess, I think while he was in Congress, he was the head of the DCCC, the, uh, the Democratic uh, House's sort of independent spending campaign operation. Um, and according to the American prospect, um, he arranged uh, to load up the House Financial Services Committee with Wall Street Democrats, who sought the prize seat. To raise lots of Wall Street money and protect Wall Street's financial interests. Um, so, Rahm, um, he he became um,
1: Obama's chief of staff after that. These people just not view like public office as a as a public service. I mean, it's just it's so it's so it's so ugly, right? It's so it's so sleazy. It's like public office is a stepping stone for personal enrichment.
0: Absolutely, and whether whether or not you go into public office with the goal of kind of coming out of it just a more important person who can get a big paying job, I think a lot of people are are incentivized to do that because they hang out with a lot if if they're kind of part of this sort of normal political establishment and uh, in, in its process. You know, they hang out with these really wealthy people who have undue influence because of their money, and they start to think of themselves as kind of part of that class. And then after they do their term or their couple terms, they say, "Oh, listen, like I, I need to actually." Now that I'm not in power, I need to be part of that class by being one of them. Actually, going in and having that level
1: of income, uh, i do so miss the you. dinner parties.
0: Yeah, I mean the wine cave—that's yeah, that's wine cave politics, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, and I'm not even kidding. It's straight up. Like, this is what. This is why, you know, um, a, a very small, select number of, of politicians in the United States are vehemently against big dollar fundraisers. And in, in general, big money in politics and, and independent spending as well, uh, unlimited money from super PACs, etc. is because
2: this is what happens. It is extremely
0: corrupting.
2: And it seems it seems obvious that this would happen. It's just that the people who would be responsible for fixing it are the ones benefiting from it.
0: Right. That's the yeah. That's the inherent like catch twenty two of, of of reforming elections and campaign finance. Right. I mean, there's a reason why we still have. The electoral college i guess at least one of the parties has been really benefiting from it uh in the last 20 years and so um they, they're not incentivized to get rid of it and it's the same thing with obviously with campaign finance
1: but um i mean it, it is worth, it is sort of worth uh, acknowledging that the lifestyle that these people lead is or, or, or that they are exposed to is glamorous uh, yeah look at the clintons i mean very glamorous. Boy, like you know i snuck into a party back in uh back when i was in college um and Bill and Hillary Clinton were there. Dude, who was hosting the party? I have absolutely no idea. But it was in a it was in a very uh, it was in a very wealthy area that my my friends and I snuck into. And uh, we you know, we we had I think we had like a couple blazers that we that we managed, that we had because we were at my friend's house and he had like a couple blazers. So we put those on and we went in and started telling people that we were like uh students at like Dartmouth and and uh Harvard how are the how are the canapes though?
0: <laughs> how are the what how do you even say that word Can- canapes that's right yeah canapes I don't know they're like those little circular kind of mini tarts I guess they're usually filled with like some kind of savory something is that right is that like, Dan- like a Dan- like a danish I mm-hmm. kind of, but I think it's more. like It might have egg in it, or it might have like shrimp. I don't even know. Man, I don't go to these. What? Things. I've never. How have I never heard this term? Well, canape is like one of the classic words that like I, I see journalists using when they're
2: describing fancy fundraisers. Like
1: canape filled. Oh, so it's like a tre- It's like a trendy word. If, if it's ever.
2: like it's like caviar, except harder to pronounce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it symbolizes like a
1: wealthy kind of like. What about like pigs in a blanket? No. <laughs> mm.
0: That that's kind of solid, you know, as, as an app. It's kind of solid.
1: You can, you can,
2: exactly you can, solid. <laughs> you can do those up.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that's All right, folks. So I just, I want to fill you in on, on Rom's past before we get to his presence. Um, after mm-hmm. Congress, uh, he was Obama's chief of staff. Um, and he tried to talk Obama out of proposing the Affordable Care Act, which, um, you know, as we know, has, has been a very underwhelming act that continued to prop up the health insurance companies. But... Especially at the time, it was viewed as a, a good step forward—not not nearly what they should have done, but a good step forward. So, of course, Rahm Emanuel was on the wrong side of that. Uh, then, after Obama, he became the Chicago mayor. Um, this he guy's also, career
1: is just—you know—he keeps he keeps going, man. You got to give him credit for that, at least, like. I mean, my if I were if I were really this
0: big, to the next.
1: if I were that big a piece of shit, I'd probably crawl under a blanket and you know reconsider my life. Yeah, but like I kind of feel like he
0: sort of. I mean, he's he's so evil that he must kind of love being evil. <laughs> um, if, like, if like I don't that. think, like he th- he loves being the enemy of the left. Um, you know, no, I mean,
2: I, it's, I I think I think he thinks that he's doing the right thing. Mark, he could be come on um, I, no, I do i think I think these people talk I think it's motivated reasoning and they t- they talk themselves into why what's good for me is also good for the country and good for the people
0: yeah, that's so yeah, I mean, if you're doing. still yeah, I mean, I guess like if you act the thing is I, I just don't think anyone who who claims to believe in trickle down economics actually thinks it really works at this point well, you have I to understand
1: alex it's it's not it's not solidarity, it's noblesse oblige. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I think that's pretty charitable to think. Like, I, Ron Emanuel is, a, is an asshole, but he's not a stupid person. Like, I think he he understands what he's doing, um, and and he, you know, I don't think that at this point, having what is he, sixty years old or fifty five years old, he's he's been around for a long time in politics, in much of his life. Like, he's seen what what these kinds of theories have have actually resulted in, and they have definitely not resulted in prosperity for the greater. Good. I mean, what I, what I would maybe uh, consider is that he thinks that essentially, like, oligarchies are good and, like, most people are not equipped to really be making these hard decisions about our government, about our laws, um, and about our economy. So, therefore, like, it is actually good to have a, a, a very small but very, very privileged class that, is, you know, is running the country and, like, maybe that's how he might justify it. Right. I just don't no, really think it matters that much. Okay, right. I don't think it, I don't think it really matters. I mean, the, the bottom line is, like, You know, this guy was called Mayor 1% when he was the the, the mayor of Chicago. Um, And, and, you know, towards the end of his tenure, he covered up the uh, police killing of Laquan McDonald by holding video evidence. Uh, He withheld video evidence um, from the public for for an entire year um, as the police lied about what actually happened. And then it took a, a FOIA, a Freedom of Information request by an independent journalist. Rock on freelance journalists um, to uncover the video, which completely contradicted what what Rahm Emanuel Manuel had said, what the police department was saying so after after being Chicago mayor and covering up the murder of a black unarmed black man, um, Rahm uh, joins uh, Center View Partners, another investment bank uh, where he makes uh, I'm sure uh, a lot many more millions of dollars and and um, I believe he's still employed by Center View uh, as he is now advising the
1: Joe Biden campaign. So wait. Biden recruited him from a bank. Uh,
0: that seems to be the case, yes. Um, I mean Rom Emanuel's worked with Biden for a long time. I'm sure they're close friends like God. a lot of the people in his campaign. That you know, he's he's uh, he's yeah, he's he's getting the best folks. God damn. So, you know, that that's Rom's history, but let's talk about what he's doing now. Um, as an advisor to um, Joe Biden, he is apparently um, advising him on issues such as the economy as the vice presidential pick um and you know we'll get into that a little bit um and other issues so um what this article from the chicago tribune that came out about a week ago says among emmanuel's ideas uh democrats should stop looking timid on reopening the country amid the coronavirus pandemic and offer a bold plan to rebuild the nation's infrastructure so it's interesting that you know he, he's simultaneously kind of indulging the right, I guess, by, by sort yeah. of saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't be wimps and, you know, we should open the economy up and, and, you know, match Trump and his fervor for, uh, you know, workers. And, and then he's also talking about an infrastructure plan, which is something that, uh, would it kind of
2: almost evokes a, a new deal kind of thing. So I don't really know I, how I he's mean, trying to straddle both he, sides. I think, I think his, um, I think what is really telling of, of how rum many feels was, uh, some some other comments he made. He said that Trump um, is already pushing forward a revolution, um, and he questions. He doesn't think that pitting one revolution against against another revolution is the right contrast. Yeah, that was incredible. That which was um, totally incredible. Which is another, I think, feat of motivated reasoning given 2016 and what happened there. The the fact that these people still um, think this way and have not woken up to what, you know, 90% of the country cares about and are, and are feeling is just, it's, it's, it's the degree of just out of touchness is incredible.
1: Well, can we, can we also talk about the fact that like, there is no treatment for COVID-19, there is no vaccine for COVID-19 and we are not anywhere near herd immunity. So the idea that we should be reopening, I mean, this sort of, it started with protests, right? Like Trump, like but Divos family connected protests in in uh, Michigan, and then Trump started tweeting about it. And now the the GOP is sort of controlling this narrative, like it's time to open up. And all the Democrats are like, "Yeah, let's let's open up, but uh, we're gonna do it the right way." And it's like we shouldn't even be talking about opening up. We well, should be talking uh, about the fact that we don't have a government that's providing the aid people need to shelter in place safely until we do have a vaccine or some kind of treatment or and
2: it's, immunity. And it's part, it's part of, I feel like, this tradition of Democrats trying not to look like wimps um, compared to Republicans. They did it with crime.
1: Um, and it's Biden did it with crime. Yeah, Biden did it with crime. And, well, it's reacting rather than, rather than acting. They don't set the agenda. They react to it. No,
2: they're defining themselves against
1: what the Republicans are doing. All right, let's take a break here and we'll be back soon. So, Rahm Emanuel yeah. is one of the is one of the ghouls behind Joe Biden's campaign, and that that makes sense. I mean, Rahm fits squarely with where Joe Biden has been and is politically. Um, but there are more there are more ghouls there are more ghouls that I want to get to uh, today, um, and and I'd like to talk about one in particular who is who's close to my heart. Not not really, <laughs> um, and that is Larry Summers. Oh, so, it's Larry. It's old Larry, you know. Oh, Larry. It Larry. <laughs> um, so yeah, Larry Summers is uh, is one of the world's most prominent economists, and also one of the world's most noted terrible thinkers. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, yeah, this is a guy who's who has been notably wrong in so many ways throughout his career. It's just it's stunning. So, so to go back. Uh, to the start, it, let's let's start in the '80s. He's a Reagan economic advisor. Um, Holy and, shit! I, mean, I didn't I didn't actually realize that. Yeah, he served. On, he was part of the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors under, Reagan. under um, Reagan. Awesome. And then, I mean, then he 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 went on to serve. Uh, as an economic advisor to Dukakis during the presidential campaign. You know, you got to dip your feet in both parties. You're not really, that's sort of, that's sort of uh, Larry Summers. He doesn't really, he's not a man with any real commitments, Um, but he is a motivated neoliberal. I mean, this is, this is a guy who.
2: He's carrying the torch of uh, Friedman. Well, exactly. Yeah. So Larry Summers was also the uh, chief economist for the world bank Um, Back in the early '90s, and let me—we'll just talk about one of his signature achievements in that capacity. He signed a memo which um, has, forever since, been known as the Summers Memo. Um, It was a memo written by Lant Pritchett and signed by Summers, um, and it included this uh, gem of a section entitled "Dirty Industries." Just between you and me, shouldn't the World Bank be encouraging more migration of the of dirty industries to the least developed countries? Um oh my god. So I'll I'll let that I'll let that rest for a second. Um so so again this, so this memo this memo was all about trade liberalization and this specific section was um just one of many but let, let's walk through some of the reasons uh why migrating basically all the pollutions of the world dirty industries to least developed countries is a good idea. Um According to this memo that Larry Summers signed, again, when he was the chief economist for the World Bank. Um, Reason number one, uh, the costs of pollution are lost earnings, so why don't we do it in countries where people are paid less?
1: Perfect. Um, Makes perfect sense.
2: And I think here's a direct quote. I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest-waste country is impeccable, and we should face up to that. Uh, What?
1: (laughs) What a fucking monster.
2: <laughs> impeccable? Like,
0: how often do you use the word impeccable? And then like, think the about that. Then, then how, That's your holdup, Alex? The, the no, no, no. no <laughs> hear me out. Think about how often you use the word impeccable, right? And then think about using it to talk about dumping toxic waste on
2: poor people impeccable that's the that's the only time i use the word impeccable
1: <laughs> all right well that makes sense yeah i mean yeah. I use the word so I'm that, I if i'm
2: talking about when it
1: i, I do i, I I'm, I'm generally referring to dumping toxic waste <laughs> on
2: poor people okay let's get let's get to reason number two uh it's cheaper to pollute early on presumably because there are no laws against it in place in those countries yet um <laughs> brilliant so <laughs> I'll pull the the direct quote i've always thought that under i've always thought that underpopulated countries in africa are vastly underpolluted. <laughs> their air quality is probably vastly <laughs> inefficiently low compared to la or mexico city um but what know? does he even mean by if
0: they're they're underpolluted"? as if like because our country is pretty polluted like you
1: know lesotho should be equally polluted or something it's, like what it's, the? it's worth it's worth pointing out that they that after this memo came out, they uh, Summers and Pritchett both claimed that it was satire.
0: But like but the memo was, a official it, it was memo. an official, it was an official
1: from from the, from the, World, the Bank. World
0: Bank. Like you
2: don't you don't put out a joke. That's not who, who I don't know. No, I can't was, imagine that. Was this was I think this was like pre the Onion too. Um, so he says the only lamentable fact, um, the the only lamentable fact is that so much pollution is generated by non-tradable industries like transport and and electrical generation and that unit transport costs of solid waste are so high that they prevent uh world welfare enhancing trade uh, in their air pollution and waste
1: world enhancing world welfare enhancing trade in air pollution and waste i think i think he's
2: getting it it's the fact that it's economically infeasible, or it's ex- economically burdensome, to go dump all this waste on those other countries. But if we could, we should. But uh, yeah.
0: So, what it's, waste is he? What kind of waste is he talking about? Just po- pollution, <laughs> pollution in general.
1: Because well, this is
0: the early '90s. Like, was was the idea of cap
2: and trade even like something then? Yes, it was. I, I think that I mean this was this was when the sort of. Uh, Environmental awakening was happening. I think recycling had just caught on a couple of years before this. Um, so this this was this was very much like during the uh, environmental revolution. So
0: what he's saying about air pollution he means build build factories abroad in, in countries that are under polluted
1: basically yeah, because yes. it'll be okay. cheaper and the the costs are lost earnings, but people there are paid less anyway, so their lives I guess are worth less.
0: Right. And their air needs to be equally polluted
2: as ours. Now,
1: now Mark, as I recall, there's one more, there's one more. Uh, yeah. So, so the, the third,
2: uh, point or tenant that he, that he makes in this memo is that uh, basically that a clean environment is like a first world aesthetic luxury. Um, and the quote here is, the concern over an agent that causes a one in a million change in the odds of prostate cancer is obviously going to be much higher in a country where people survive to get prostate cancer than in a country where under five mortality rate is about 200 per 1,000.
0: Jesus Christ. <laughs>
2: it's, it's like, it's psychopathic,
0: the reasoning. Yeah, I think that's a good word to describe it, really. It is the words of a psychopath.
1: So, like what, how, I mean, how broken do you have to be to to draft this, to, to sign your name to this? To Like this was like, they say it was, they said it was satire and there was an effort to discredit the world bank, but they, but one guy wrote it and then the other guy signed it like Pritchett wrote it and then Summers signed it. Like what the,
2: f- now, are they submitting but, this to like you- SNL? Like, was it like, you know what?
0: But well, what blows my mind even more is that this was his audition for the Bill Clinton administration. He wrote this in 91 and Bill Clinton came to power in 92. So, you know, you would, if you're vetting your, your, your future white house staff, you're going to, this is going to turn up,
1: right? That's, that's very true. Although I don't think many people have accused Bill Clinton of being a, a moral person. No,
0: but it's, it's just like that. I mean, That's who he was staffing up with to begin with in the beginning of his
1: presidency, was people like this, psychopaths like this. So, yeah, most people, most people know Summers from from his time in in Bill Clinton's administration. Um, And and, I mean, and for good reason. I mean, Summers was one of the big voices behind uh, Wall Street deregulation. He cheered on the repeal of Glass-Steagall. He. He blocked an effort to, to regulate derivatives. So we, we we obviously know this, having come through the subprime mortgage crisis that many trace back to these to these uh, deregulatory decisions that the Clinton administration made. Uh, and obviously Summers, being a big part of those decisions, was it, it rightly singled out. Um, but what most people don't don't know is that Summers also had a hand in empowering Vladimir Putin. The the, uh, you know, the boogeyman hiding under Nancy Pelosi's bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a fucked up image, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so Summers, Summers actually pushed Bill Clinton to get involved in, in Russia uh, as the Soviet union was collapsing and Russia was having its currency crisis. Summers set up a project uh, through the Harvard Institute of International Development, which was going to, uh, which provided advice on Russia and how to liberalize their economy, um, with the full backing of the United States, and basically what Summers prescribed was rapid deregulation, easing of price controls, and privatization of state assets, uh, including social services, which predictably uh, left Russia in in uh, ruins. I mean between between 1992 uh or 1991 and and 2009 about 7 million Russians died between 91 and 98 GDP plummeted about 40% uh organized crime was rampant the oligarchs came to power uh mm-hmm. essentially when you privatize everything it empowers a few people who get to to profit off it <laughs> And well, especially in a
0: time of crisis, right? It's it's right. a time of transition of reimagining the system, and so that's when these neoliberal economists like to swoop in, like you guys mentioned earlier, right? Milton Friedman, how he's kind of the godfather of this stuff, of neoliberal, you know, economic and regime change. Well, this is what Summers was doing in Russia. It sounds like,
1: yeah. So it it was shock it was shock therapy. I mean, look, Russia at this time uh, was like a wild west. I've I've done some reporting on this, uh, and and everybody who I've talked to. Has said the same thing. Like Russia was, Russia was lawless. It was, it was practically lawless. It was, it was hedonistic. It was, uh it was like a modern Sodom and Gomorrah. They were uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, Rolling Stone writer. Matt Taibbi was living in Russia at the time, and he described like seeing dead bodies on his way to on his way to work. He worked at a, a satire magazine called The Exile. When when America first got involved in Russia, the Russians welcomed Americans, which is sort of typical of. The, You know, we have this reputation that we had, at least this reputation abroad as, you know, oh, we're going to come in and we're going to bring liberal democracy and it's going to be great. But as the economy tanked, that that those those feelings evaporated and were replaced with deep, deep resentment. And out of that resentment rose Vladimir Putin. Uh, Putin comes in. He. He uh, gets the oligarchs out of politics. He cracks down on crime. He renationalizes parts of the oil industry so people see actual wage, wage growth for the first time in a decade. Uh, he consolidates control over state media. And he, he diminishes the role of Western-friendly officials in government, which people view as like, oh, he's the savior of Russia. So if you're ever wondering why Vladimir Putin is able to remain in power Uh, In in Russia, it's because a lot of people still view him as this sort of savior out of this period So thank you, Mr. Summers. Thank you for that (laughs) Um, And just one final note on this is that the whole thing ended in scandal Because the the man who headed uh, The economic development in Russia, Harvard economist Andrei Schleifer and his wife and another colleague were all caught using their positions to enrich themselves and they eventually, in 2006, settled with the United States government.
0: Sick. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, but the fun continues because um, after his time with Clinton, Larry Summers was the president of Harvard University, um, where he where clearly already uh, done work. Um, so he was president from 01 to 06. Um, and his tenure ended pretty abruptly. Um, by a combination of factors, uh, including a there was a faculty revolt um, uh, motivated by how he was criticizing uh, black professors like Cornell West. Um, he had made sexist statements um, claiming that women aren't great at the sciences because they are inherently very good at math. It's kind it's of incredible for a pre- university president to, to actually say that publicly is, is, is astounding. Um, he supported Schleifer, uh, I guess, during the settlement talks. Um, and... Uh, you know that more recently uh there's a, there's a new controversy uh, that has emerged from time at uh, Harvard involving uh donations from uh, Jeffrey Epstein
1: obviously the kind of guy you want to bring onto a national campaign where you're already struggling to uh, to convince young people and
2: yes yeah, so, progressives
1: to, that you, that you're their guy so so to bring this back
2: to Biden right so Bi- Biden knows he needs to reach out to progressives he's signaling to progressives, that he's going to take them seriously, he just recently told Politico, I think explicitly, that Larry Summers is not running the show anymore. So Biden and his campaign are complete, acutely aware of all this, and yet the fact that he that he brings these people on to the phone calls, uh, into the meetings, is, is taking their advice, is staying up till all hours of the night with Rahm Emanuel on the phone. It tells you that he can't help himself. These are his yeah. friends. This is his universe. This is yeah, his worldview.
1: Of course, it wasn't all that long before Summers rebounded again. Uh, this time, uh, reinventing himself as the director of the National Economic Council for President Obama, uh, which he held for a year from 2009 to 2010. Uh, during in that time, he oversaw the stimulus and was actually one of the reasons why the stimulus was so weak. While uh, he, well, he supported the corporate bailouts wholeheartedly, when it came to the people, it just uh, bailing out the middle class. Uh, He was very, he was very, I guess, tepid, uh, you could say. Uh, To quote, uh, to quote an article that was from the Atlantic uh, by Michael Hirsch. um, Summers pushed a stimulus that was too meek. And along with his chief ally, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, he helped ensure that millions of desperate mortgage holders would stay underwater by failing to support a cram down, that would have allowed federal bankruptcy judges to have banks reduce mortgage balances, cut interest rates, and lengthen terms of loans. At the same time, he supported every bailout for financial firms. All of this has left uh, the economy still in the doldrums five years after Lehman Brothers 2008 collapse and hurt the middle class. Yet in no instance has Summers ever been known to, publi- to publicly acknowledge a mistake. Now, it's funny because that article came out in The Atlantic, uh, and Summers put in a call. Uh, according to Robert Kuttner, co-editor of The American Prospect, um, Hirsch paid a price for writing that article because uh, Summers personally complained to David Bradley, who was then the publisher of Atlantic Media, which owned the National Journal, um, Hirsch was advised to, and Hirsch was advised to seek out other work. Uh, he ended up moving to Politico and then to foreign policy, although no errors were ever found in that piece. So
0: what's interesting, though, I mean, I guess it's not like there's going to be real accountability. Uh, but like and obviously that's complete horseshit that someone's got to basically get someone fired. But like usually it, it, it's on the editor, like the editor is in control of what's in the article. Um, but maybe the editor was like um, was was like too well liked.
1: I don't know. I just I just want to give a shout out to Jeet here, who was who's who wrote about this uh, in in an article about how, how Summers is a dead albatross around Joe Biden's neck. Um, oh wow, it, that's uh, a good yeah. Yeah, yeah that's you know, a great article title. Uh, <laughs> that that history. So so
2: yeah. So that, I, I mean, I, I so it, it also makes you wonder, like, what other instances that we haven't heard about. Um, have there been, in which Larry Summers pressures journalists or other institutions to to kind of bend to his will? So, if you had to um, sum up uh, Larry Summers' life work and his 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 view of the world and the economy in one sentence, I think it would be he, he's bearing the torch of Milton Friedman, um, and and it's clear that. Friedman, uh, that, uh, Summers, um, had very warm feelings towards Mr. Friedman and, and was a huge admirer of the, of the work. Um, so uh, here's this one, I think this was a eulogy that, that, uh, that Summers gave for Friedman. I feel that I've lost a hero, a man whose success demonstrates that great ideas convincingly advanced can change the lives of people all around the world. Well, they, they certainly changed lives for a lot of people. <laughs> That's <laughs> one way of putting it. Not so long ago, we were all Keynesians. Equally, any honest Democrat now will admit that we are all Friedmanites.
1: So, ben, to change the lives of people all around the world is a hell of a way of describing uh, supporting fascist regimes that, <laughs> that that dismantle their social safety nets and, and uh, immiserate millions of people. Yeah. So, see, so fuck, fuck that guy. <laughs> I think we can all agree. Davos, baby. Fuck Davos. that guy. <laughs> I mean, like How fucked up do you have to be to, like, keep bringing this, this ghoul back into like, into politics? Like, like, let him go. Just, well, just, and like it,
0: the, but the thing is, it's like, you know, that Milton Friedman and the Chicago boys and, and that, you know, Chicago school of, of uh, free market economics and neoliberalism, like, is generally seen as kind of a conservative group of people. Like you know, we kind of look back and like people. People sort of regard that as a conservative economic movement, and then you have people like Larry Summers who have been for decades now influencing, uh, you know, democratic policy. And you kind of realize that.
2: Like, well, you know, it's, the, it, both sides are fighting for the same people, right? right. Fundamentally, <laughs> that's a, just, that's a really good point. It's
1: just,
2: yeah, it's just the social issues are. The so question
1: problems. is, what motivation then the young, or what? I guess. I guess the question then becomes: What commitment do young people really have from Joe Biden that he that he well, delivers well, anything for them?
2: I mean, and so so this is what's interesting to me because Biden um, no and his campaign are acutely aware that they they need to reach out to progressives and younger people, most of whom are progressives on the Democratic side, um, and they're 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 signaling that they're going to do this, um, uh, and yet he's still um has larry summers on an on an advisor larry summers is on the phone calls he's up he has rahm Emanuel. uh you know rahm Manuel says he's, he stays up late most nights with joe biden on the phone uh and he has to tell joe biden <laughs> to, you to hang the phone because he has to go to bed so it, it just tells you that he he can't help
0: himself the, the, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean this is just this is the his he's been a politician for a long time and these are the people he's surrounded himself with and he feels comfortable with the same people, um, you know, and, and it's it's not just uh, an annual in Summers. I mean, there's a lot more uh, swamp creatures, including this guy, Steve Ricchetti, who is his campaign uh, chairman. He also worked in the Clinton White House uh, with Summers um, on the the NAFTA, uh, pushing NAFTA through Congress. Um, then he was Biden's chief of staff when Biden was the vice president. Um, and uh after after the obama administration Ruchetti went on to be a pharmaceutical lobbyist and now he's he's chairing the campaign and he will likely be a member of the administration if, if biden does win so um that's a little context for you about biden's um stance on healthcare and anti-medicare for all um sentiments but um you know i i, re- I really do think um especially when you're talking about a future administration, a potential future administration, personnel is policy, the best indicator of how that administration is going to go or how that, you know, that politician is going to legislate, et cetera. depends on who they're talking to about policy. I mean, the the president of the United States has to cover all policy, foreign and domestic. Um, You have to imagine they rely incredibly heavily on their, their top advisors. So if these are the people who are going to be their top advisors, uh, That's, that's, that's what the presidency of Joe Biden would be if he, if he wins, I think.
1: I mean, he's just got to get rid of all of these people. Like in order for, in order for any, any person on the left to to support him, uh, I I think Biden should get rid of these people. They, they, they are again,
2: the, the torchbearers of bad ideas that have run their course and that lost, lost the Democrats the presidency in 2016,
1: but more importantly and, than that, you know,
2: they should have moved on from by now,
1: but more importantly, they have miserated the country. <laughs> They've immiserated millions of people. I mean, these, these are not, these, these folks, I mean, destroyed the working class in America. And now, and now we're, we're supposed to believe that Biden with them on his team is going to, you know, restore the soul of America. What, what, what does that mean? Oh, no. Uh and, he sees himself as a bridge to the future. What does that mean? You know, he, br- he says, like, my job is to bring the Pete Buttigieg's into the, into the national spotlight. Like, I'm sorry, but... No, exactly.
2: These, <laughs> these, these ideas took hold in, like, the late 70s and early 80s as a way to make money when we were mostly stagnant. Um, and arguably at the time, maybe it was smart to do because it worked. There was growth. It just all happened to go uh, to the top 1%. But it's run its course now. We've it's proven itself to be bad. It's been extractive. It's devastated the middle of the country, the working class, and it, even more. It's it's almost a national security threat at this point. Like we've seen with COVID, because we can't even make we can't even manufacture cotton swabs, reliant <laughs> <laughs> on or, <laughs> or or uh, masks um, because we've outsourced. We've outsourced everything under under the under the uh, the thinking of people like Larry Summers uh, and, and Friedman
1: it hasn't just hurt us either. It's like, I mean, it's destroyed the globe, like worldwide. The destruction of neoliberalism is, is, uh, the, the or the legacy of neoliberalism is destruction. Yeah. Like Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Syria. I mean, all of these places that it's just, the, the legacy is, is damage and, and, uh, violence.
2: And, and, and we need to move past it. And it's, it's, it's and I think we, I think we know, um, at least on the left, we know what the, the next stadium that we need to go in of, of, of thinking politically is, and it's frustrating that this is where we are again. And, uh, do
1: you feel any compunction to, to go out and, um, do you feel like any desire to go out and work to get Biden elected? Like, obviously, obviously, he's preferable to Trump. But do you feel any motivation to like go out and put put your feet on on the feet? No, the
2: it, it's just, it's, it's, again, unfortunate that Trump is the alternative because he's a, a more immediate existential threat <laughs> than a continuation of neoliberal status quo, unfortunately. But uh, no, I, I'm not excited. Or...
0: Guys, I just want to say, um, I, just as you were talking, I was a little distracted. I was actually putting in an order for a T-shirt. That I'm going to wear a lot this summer. and It says better things aren't possible. So that that's my take on, <laughs> on that's my take on on the uh, on the Biden campaign.
1: It it does sort of leave, leave you feeling hopeless, doesn't it? Like nothing can nothing can change. I mean, this is. But like, obviously, that's not that's not the case. And obviously, I I, I don't think things can stay stagnant forever. They they certainly can't. And 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 in the past, when we've had big seismic shifts in the political. Uh, in the political mood of the country, Washington has reacted, albeit slowly. Uh, so, you know, it's not, all hope is not lost. But yeah, the, the Biden administration, like, let's not sugarcoat it for people. It's going to be a shit show if it, if it comes to be. It's going to be a neoliberal nightmare and it, it, will not, it will not deliver on the things that the left wants.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that, the likelihood of him being reelected seems extremely low. Given, given what they're what they're going to do, what they're not going to do in the in the four years, um, plus I mean, who knows? I mean, Biden's he might be too old to have a second term. I mean, he might be the vice president, and that's a whole another discussion for another day. Um, he's the only it, guy. It's I think hard for me can yeah. win though. <laughs> like, I don't know if he can win. I certainly don't know if he can win. <laughs> uh, I think if if COVID nineteen hadn't struck the world, he'd be a, a he, uh, Donald Trump would be the heavy favorite to win. Yeah, um, but things are completely up in the air now.
1: Yep. So that's our sh- that's our first episode of uh, Gilded Age. I hope everybody enjoyed it. And you learned something, uh, even if you didn't learn anything. I hope that you enjoyed our our warm interactions with each other.